Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for everything, the good and the bad, the um, Lord, you're on your throne, high and lifted up, and we just say, praise the Lord. Um, so now as we get into some nuts and bolts here, I just pray for your spirit. I pray that you would help me to know what to say and what not to say. There's a lot I'd like to cover, um, but just help me to do it in a way that would be encouraging and practical to those who are listening. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive in, I just want to point out to you that I assume, by faith, I believe that I have two handouts on the AdAgra website for this class. Has anybody seen them? Okay, so I don't, like I say, by faith they're there. Um, and they're really important ones, in my opinion. One is on um, resources for the market gardener. And, and I've actually put in quite a bit of time. I update it every year, um, you know, with books, with websites, with blog, or uh, what do you call them, podcasts, with um, online courses. There's, there's actually an, um, uh, an incredible amount. Of, in fact, in my opinion, it's getting too much information out there. You know, when I started, you had to you were just information starved. And now you're kind of, it's information overload. And so you have to try to sift through it. So I've done that in, in a way by just saying, these are our favorites. These are the ones that we really like. Okay, Cavell says it's on there, so good. So there's, that's the one resource. And then the other one is, um, I don't remember what I called it, but Tools and equipment, what is it? Market Gardening Toolkit. Okay, Market Gardening Toolkit. And again, I've tried to be as detailed as possible, giving a lot of, you know, specific brands of scales and, and tools. Again, not that we have all the knowledge and that this is the one right answer, but at least this is what we have found helpful. So I would encourage you to take advantage of those resources. Also, the other thing that I realized when, as, as I was uh, looking at the, the program, was that I really didn't talk a lot about the why of market gardening. And so I want to just take a few minutes. I, I, I think in a way I'm preaching to the choir here. I, I don't think you would be here at, at Agra or be in this session if you weren't convicted on the importance of it. So I, I'm not gonna say too much, but well, I'd like to read a quote and, and encourage you to, to get this book if you don't have it, Councils on Agriculture. This is a compilation of Mrs. White's writings on agriculture. There's a whole chapter entitled, A Call for Christian Farmers. So read that if you want to know why we should be doing this. But the clincher quote for me is from Ministry of Healing, page 183. 
In God's plan for Israel, every family had a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and the incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. I love that. Useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. And no devising of men has ever improved upon that plan. You know, what other reason do you need for going into market gardening? No other, no devising of man has ever improved on God's plan. God created us to live in the garden. I, I could spend an hour easy just telling you all the reasons why I think you should get into it. I mean, it's incredible for the family. It's incredible to grow your faith. It's incredible for so many reasons. Incredible opportunity for outreach. It's just such a natural bridge to people. You, you don't even have to work at outreach. You know, it's not something you have to check off every, check off your list every week. It just happens as you meet with, with your customers. Um, I would say, I, want, I wrote it down because I thought this was kind of profound, but I, I really believe this. I believe market gardening is the world's greatest hope for the future. That's a pretty broad statement. Notice though that I said the world's greatest hope for the future. Okay, we have a greater hope for the future. But as far as those who aren't seeing that greater hope, I truly believe, and we don't have time to really d dive into that, but I believe market gardening is the world's greatest hope for the future of this planet. So is that enough reasons why? <clears throat> If not, you can talk to me afterwards and we can. So let's dive into to the uh, how. Or, well, let's start with what is a market garden? You know, I don't think there's an official definition. So this is what I define it as. Less than three acres of cultivated land. And most market gardens that I'm aware of are an acre and a half or less. Very intensive. Characterized by intensive beds and multiple high value crops per bed per year. This is not planting your corn in the spring and harvesting it in the fall and sitting back all winter. This is very intensive use of your area. Takes advantage of season extension and often goes year-round. With, with Elliot Coleman's um, The Winter Harvest Handbook, that kind of opened up the reality that for pretty much anywhere in the United States, almost anywhere in the world, you can grow year-round with very um, simple techniques. It doesn't take fancy high-tech gadgets. 
And market gardens are usually very diverse. Your eggs are not all in one basket. And that's the beauty of it. You know, every year, I think we could ask any market gardener in here, um, every year they have crop failures. But you've always got enough other things going that it's not like a major hit. You know, when we started out, we had all our eggs in one basket. We were a strawberry farm. And when we got hit with um, weeks of rain, which led to a major anthracnose outbreak, we were like down for the count. You know, if it weren't for God's goodness, that would have been the end of our market gardening. So we know about diversifying. Now, I do want to just say this. You know, I, I'm always sensitive because is this the only model for agriculture that is God approved? I, I don't think so. Um, there's no one size fits all. And, you know, I don't know how the ad agra can bridge the gap between market gardening and big scale agriculture, because I know there's many Adventists or at least quite a few Adventists in big scale agriculture. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, of course, I have personal convictions about organic and those methods, um, but that can be done on a large scale. I read an amazing book recently, From Dirt to Soil. Have any of you read that book? About Gabe Brown up in, uh, well, I think he's in North Dakota. Gabe, Gabe, Gabe Brown. It's, you know, it, it didn't, a lot of it didn't apply to me personally, but it was just kind of a neat overview and of how he's turned his 5,000 acre farm into this incredible, um, incredible place of diversity and regenerative agriculture. So, there's no one size fits all. If you have access to lots of land and tractor availability, then go for it. You know, most people trying to get into agriculture, that's a huge barrier. You know, I mean, these big farm, thousands of acres, who could afford that in this day and age? You know, and, and the, the big equipment is just incredibly expensive. You know, hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars for, for pieces of equipment. But if that's the way you want to go, I know most young men, you know, they love the tractor, the power, the noise. Right, Clayton? <laughs> okay. Um, but I think the market gardening model fits very nicely with the spirit of prophecy model. So again, I'm not saying this is the only model, but I think it, it's a very good fit for Adventists. Um, and just, you know, families working together, you don't have to hire a lot of outside help. That uh, better together theme is, is amazing. You know, to, to work with your kids every day and not have to just see them before you go to work and after you come home. Um, the, the, as, as we already mentioned, just the opportunities for agricultural evangelism. You know, Mrs. White talks about the, 
the thousands and tens of thousands living in the cities that if they could just have a little piece of land in the country, they could make, you know, they could survive. And that's what market gardening is all about. And we want to be teaching that to others, those thousands and tens of thousands of others. So the advantages of the market gardening model as compared to other models of agriculture. Number one, less land needed. You know, most people, when they're thinking of moving to the country, they're thinking, man, you know, I got to have money for, for 20 acres, for 40 acres, for 100 acres. Well, you know, if you have the money, great. I mean, land is, is in my opinion, the best investment out there. Um, and it's always nice to have a buffer um, but as far as what you actually need to be to support yourself, I mean, two acres of land, you can easily support yourself on two acres of land. So that that lowers the barrier for people getting into this, which is huge. Less water needed. Obviously, you know, if you're growing that intensively, you can't always wait for the rain to plant. You know, you got to plant as soon as the other crop is pulled out. So you need a good source of water. Um, and obviously, if you're irrigating less acreage, you need less water. So you don't have to get such a huge well or pump or whatever. Less equipment needed. Um, some of the most successful market gardens I know of don't even own a tractor. Just using hand tools. Less stress. You know, this may depend on your personality, but, you know, we used to, at, what, at one time, we were farming about seven acres. And, you know, you can't keep seven acres looking like the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. It's hard enough to keep an acre and a half looking like the Garden of Eden. But, you know, if you have well-defined fields and, you know, hoop houses have boundaries, it, it's much easier to kind of surround that. And it's like, ah, I, I did it. I've got my little piece under control. But when you're doing acres, you know, unless you're, you're spraying Roundup, you're not going to have all your weeds under control. I mean, even with Roundup now, they don't. But um, for me, it's just I can surround it better. And then I love this. You know, let's share, share the love. Share the why does one farm need to feed thousands of people when you could have 10 farms each feeding 100 people, 100 families. You know, it, it just, it, you can have so many more farmers doing it if you, go, if you stick with this model. And then you're not shipping across country and all these unsustainable things that we do with these big farms. Okay, so those are some advantages, and then I'm just going to go through this quickly. What I think, I, I think I counted, there's six things I have, what I consider keys to success in market gardening. 
And number one is the intensive production. Again, there's very few crops that will make enough money to just have one crop per year. You know, you're talking about multiple crops. You know, I, I was counting last year, you know, some, some fields, some of our plots, just in the, sum, the spring summer had like five different crops on them. You know, so we're talking about really fast turnarounds in intensive production. Tight spacing, you're not leaving a lot of space, you know, and this is something that takes some experimenting and, you know, looking at what other people are doing, but you want your plants close enough that they're helping to shade out the soil, shade out the weeds, but not too close or they get cramped and, um, and you start having more disease issues and stuff. Just a simple example, cabbage. You know, traditionally cabbage has been grown like on 24 inch spacings. And you know, you do it at that spacing and you can get grow mammoth cabbages. But have you tried to sell ma mammoth cabbages? Nobody, or I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people want big cabbages. It's like, what am I gonna do with this? It's just me and my three kids, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that's a meal, you know. Um, but anyway, the point is we, we do it on 12-inch on, um, spacing, and there are certain varieties that do better at small heads. So we have little, little heads of cabbage like this. Get them three rows to a bed, so we can get 300 cabbages where um, normally at two rows per bed, 24 inch spacing, I guess they'd be getting 100 cabbages. So three times as many, and they're easier to sell than big cabbages. How heavy are they? Uh, that's a good question. We don't weigh them. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, about that big, that size. For audio verse, what's that size? <laughs> Softball size, something like that. A big grapefruit size. Beds rather than rows. You know, if you have a tractor, then you often grow in rows. Um, but beds are a much more efficient use of space. And then a, a real key is focusing on high-value crops. Um, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money growing watermelons or corn, sweet corn, on a market. Now, I'm not saying there's not money to be made in those things, but that money is made when you're doing acres and acres of it. Um, but in a market garden... If you're only farming an acre or an acre and a half, you know, to, to grow watermelons and sweet corn is crazy. Of course, we do it, but we're crazy. So, you know, so we do some sweet corn and, and a few watermelons for our CSA, which, you know, for variety, but it's not, you know, I've, I've run the numbers you even if you got a really good 
Well, the average yield for corn per acre is 1,200 dozen. So how much can you sell a dozen ears of corn for? I mean, we sell at the beginning of the season, we'll sell them for a dollar an ear. Um, but that's pretty high. Three for a dollar in a grocery store. Wow. That's at, that's at the, that's the peak. Okay. Yeah, I mean, fifty. If, if you can't get fifty cents, you certainly wouldn't want to grow them. So, so what's twelve hundred dozen times fifty cents? Uh, it's too hard for my mind to work when I've got. What is it? $7,200 an acre. Can you live on that? Wow. That's, that's not good. That's nothing. That's not a good use of your land. Yeah. So, so you're looking for high-value crops, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. Now, I think hopefully it should be obvious to you that if you're doing this kind of intensive production, you better have some really good soil because... You know, there's there's a very simple um, biblical principle that you got to give more than you get, right? I mean, it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you're trying to pull out of the soil all this pro- produce and not putting more in, then, you know, you're just living the American dream, right? The The... That's why they settled the West, because they'd ruined the soil in the East. Um, yeah, so it's got to be highly fertile, and, and how you get there is beyond the scope of this class, but I would highly recommend soil tests. Amend as recommended, you know, you want to get your soil balanced as best you can. Grow cover crops, you know, this is something I'm really studying a lot more, reading a lot more about is, um, are, are you Ashley? No? Okay. Isn't there an Ashley who's doing a class on cover cropping in the greenhouse? Yeah, yeah I wish I could be at that. But just the life in the soil and trying to keep roots in the soil at all times to support the life in the soil. It's fascinating. There's, they're learning so much about that. Um, but certainly cover crops, although let me just say cover crops in a market garden, it's kind of hard to juggle them because you're growing so intensively that do you have the time and space to take out two months, three months or more just growing cover crops. So many market gardeners skip the cover crops and are just using compost, which is kind of the end result of cover crops. Um, Make compost and lots of it. Put more in than, than you're taking out. That's kind of how you get highly fertile soil. Um, Okay, third key to success, season extension. You know, especially if you live in northern Michigan or somewhere up there, your season 
ends quicker than you wish it would. But with season extension, again, anywhere in the U.S., you can go year-round. And, and there are very good models of that. I know farms up in northern Idaho, northern Michigan, northern Maine, growing year-round successfully. So, <laughs> sounds painful, somebody says. Um, and, and obviously, there's many levels of, of season extension. The, the simplest one is, is floating row covers. Does everybody... I wanted to actually ask how many are, are at least dabbling in market gardening at this point? Okay, looks like almost half. And, and the others, I assume you're, you're considering it? Okay, yeah, but I hope at this point you know what floating row covers are. Okay. Yeah, well, it's, I tell people it's like dryer sheets, unscented, large dryer sheets. And then the heavy ones are like baby wipes. That's what row covers are. Um, then low tunnels are just wire hoops over individual beds. I mean, that's one method. Then they have um, a little bigger hoops, um, they call them quick hoops that go over two beds. You can bend electric uh, metal conduit. But those, those can do amazing things. And for, the, for you starting out when you don't have a lot of, if you don't have a lot of uh, funds to get going, we have successfully marketed lettuce and if you know anything about winter growing, lettuce is not the most cold-hardy vegetable. I mean, it can handle some cold, but we have marketed lettuce out of low tunnels when the temperature had been below zero. And those, those quick hoops had um, one layer of row cover over it and then one layer of plastic. And... I crawled down the middle, you know, because it covers two beds. You can crawl down the middle and harvest the things when it's, you know, really cold outside and it's, it's uh, not as painful as it would be if you're outside. Um, but the, the, the point with, with those low tunnels is there a lot of work you know, covering and uncovering, and the wind comes through and blows it off. And, How low is a low tunnel? Well, anywhere from, you know, a foot. I mean, Elliot Coleman kind of does a, a rectangular wire hoop that will just be, you know, a foot high. Um, but anywhere, the, the ones that cover two beds will usually be about, what is that, three feet high, something like that? Yeah. So... Yeah, in the middle, right? Um, not on the edges. And, and then, of course, the, the step above low tunnels. Actually, I should have put in here caterpillar tunnels because caterpillar tunnels are, are a low-cost way to get into high tunnels, um, you know, you, something you can walk into. Um, you know, there, I think, 
I think I've figured about a fifth the price of a proper hoop house. Um, so John, my son Jonathan with Farmer's Friends sells thousands of them. I mean, it's incredible how many caterpillar tunnels are being sold all over the country. But most of them are being bought by beginning market gardeners. You know, I think any market gardener would tell you someday they'd like to replace their caterpillar tunnels with hoop houses because it's just, that's kind of the ultimate. But um, yeah, so hoop houses, these terms are loose. You know, there's not like one definition of hoop house. Some people call them high tunnels. I call a hoop house anything that you can um, walk in, although caterpillar tunnels are unique in the way that they're fastened. They're fastened with ropes over the top, which gives them the look of a caterpillar, if you look at them with an imaginative eye. So hoop houses have a different way of tightening down the plastic more permanently. And and usually hoop houses are are permanently attached to the ground. Is that like a cold frame? Cold frame is another term that some people use, although I don't like that one because in my mind, technically cold frames are something that... um, came out of Europe that are glass covered, very low structures. Um, So anyway, there's a lot of, oops, a lot of terminology. Sorry. Um, Another key to season extension is transplanting. You know, just if you, you you do this without really thinking about it, but the, the classic example would be with tomatoes. You know, if you're planting a tomato this big, it's probably eight weeks old, six to eight weeks old. You've just extended your season by six to eight weeks. Does that make sense? If you were planting a seed in the ground after the last frost, you know, you've lost eight weeks of your production. So, yeah, market gardeners transplant almost everything you transplant as much as you can another key to success efficiency this in my mind um, is one of the biggest things that separates a market gardener from a gardener you know a home gardener may be using the same 30 inch wide beds they may be using the same tools but they're not have using the same efficiencies you know um, again specialized tools I know many people when they start looking at the cost of some of these tools they're like what for a piece of metal you're charging this much but hey I say you know that's that's how it works any any trade has specialized tools and you're going to pay for them. And, and the, the good thing is most of these tools are high quality tools. And if you take care of them, you can pass them on to your grandkids. 
So they're not tools that you're going to break easily if you use them properly. Um, functional layout, standardization of space and materials. This is huge. This is huge. And I can just tell you from personal experience, you know, when we started out, as I said, we were a strawberry farm and we had our farm laid out in acre plots. And because of the lay of our land, the acre plots weren't always rectangular. They were kind of, uh, I think you call it a trapezoid or something. <laughs> um, and, you know, you don't think about it at first, but if you have a row cover, floating row cover comes in rectangular sizes. And to put a rectangle on a trapezoid, you're wasting a lot of cover on the corners. And so then we started doing different sizes and then, you know, you have three or four sizes of row cover and your sprinkler lines are different lengths and all these things seem like little things, but they add up to huge things. So if if your silage tarp and your row cover, there's one size, you know, your sprinklers, you have one setup that is totally interchangeable. It, it makes a huge difference. So I can't say enough about standardization of space and materials. And then, of course, the beauty of this and J.M. Fortier in his book, The Market Gardener, I think he kind of championed this. Um, then you start thinking of everything like, I mean, he kind of standardized on 100 foot beds. Everything that becomes a unit of measurement. You need this much compost per 100 foot bed, you know, this many wheelbarrows, this many seeds to plant a 100 foot bed of radishes. You get this many bunches on average of radishes on a 100 foot bed. So it it becomes a unit of measurement for everything you do on the farm. Um, and of course, the key is work smarter, not harder. You know, you talk to market gardeners and, and if you're just talking to them, sometimes you'd get their idea, the idea that they're lazy. You know, they say things like, oh, that's too much work. You know, moving a hose from point A to B, that's too much work. What? How much work is moving a hose? <laughs> but the point is, market gardeners are so flat out busy during the season that moving a hose from point A to point B is more work than they want to do. You know, at best, you want to just be able to turn a valve on to do all your watering. That's, that's the hardest you should work doing your watering. You know, even better um, is automated timers because, you know, it's easy to turn on the water, but turning it off seems to be harder. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know how often I get up in the morning and go out. Of course, I'll always blame it on the interns. You know, I, I don't do this, of course, but go out. Oh no, the water's been going all night. So work, 
work smarter, not harder. Okay, so here's other keys to success. I think this is number five. Direct sales. This is huge. Um, you know, you've probably heard the statistics that the average farmer gets like eight cents on every dollar or something like that that he grows, you know, because of all the middlemen. They're each taking their cut and the farmer isn't even getting to set his own prices. To me, it's like something's wrong with that model if you grow something and you can't even say what you want to get for it. But that's, that's big ag in this country. You get whatever they decide is the going rate for, for your commodity crops. But direct sales, you know, it's like, hey, this is how much we've got to charge for it. So if that's too much, go to Walmart. Eliminate the middlemen. And of course, um, farmer's markets is kind of the classic standard way and, and certainly I think a good way to, to jump into market gardening. It's a, it's a fairly low stress way, um, way to get your name out there. We are pretty partial to CSAs. Do all of you know about CSAs? Okay, I'm seeing a few heads shaking, no. CSA is, is basically a subscription to your farm. Um, so customers, families, individuals sign up for a subscription, a box of produce from your farm, either every week, usually during the summer, or a half share would be like every other week. And um, there's a lot of variations on it, but there are many things we love about it. And, and the biggest thing, well, I'd say the two biggest things is, number one, you have a guaranteed market for your crops. You know you can sell them. Well, you've already sold them before you grow them. So that's really nice. You can do budgeting and things like that. Um, but the, probably the bigger one for us, honestly, is the connections we get with the customers because we have a, a limited group of customers. We're meeting them every week. We build relationships. We literally have had some of our customers now for 20 years. You know, we've seen their kids grow up and get married and have babies, you know, and I mean, it's incredible to get Christmas cards from your customers and gifts and notes of appreciation. You know, there's just this, um, I'm getting all choked up about it, <laughs> but there's something really, really special about the relationship that you build in market gardening. Um, you know, they're calling up or emailing saying, please pray. I'll just tell you, while we were here, um, we heard that one of our customers that we've had for close to 20 years, um, he actually helped finance the start of Jonathan's business. Um, his wife died. And I mean, she found out she had cancer um, 
the end of December, or I think it may have even been the beginning of January, and she was dead like eight days later or something. I mean, but my son Joshua went to deliver his produce, and he tells him that, and he's He just says, please have your family pray for me. You know, I, he's, I don't think he's a Christian. He has a Jewish background. Um, but he values our prayers. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, now... This high-end restaurants has been an area that um, that has been very lucrative for some some uh, market gardeners, but obviously with COVID that changed quite drastically, and um, many market gardeners had to pivot very very quickly this spring because they had all these crops in the ground for restaurants and it's like what do we do with all this stuff but it's incredible to me how quickly these guys can can change direction and they started online markets and um and csas and all kinds of things um so actually i i guess i don't have that this is another thing and it kind of can fit in with farmers markets and CSA kind of fits in there somewhere, but just online, um, what do they call it? Online stores. Um, many, many farms are just doing online orders and there's a lot of advantages to it. You know, they just list up what they've got every year, send out an email to their customer base and say, hey, this is what we've got this week, you know will be delivering to such and such a spot or, or a lot of people are doing home delivery and we did that this year for the first time people loved it we realized we were undercharging and so we raised the price and we still have people you know paying eight dollars for us to deliver it to their home now and so i will say although Definitely, you want to do as much direct selling as possible, but there are some market gardeners who are finding success with wholesaling. And that's usually to like, I mean, it's not to your Kroger and um, I don't know what other big chains there are around here, Safeways and all that, because that, that's just, you know, they have big purchasers and, and that's not going to work. But local grocers, local food co-ops, um, these kind of things can work well. And so you may not be making quite as much, but if you can make that up in volume, um, people are doing it quite successfully. So it, it doesn't have to be direct sales, but um, I encourage direct sales, again, from the evangelistic side of things. Okay, and I think this is the last key to success, planning. Again, this is, in my mind, what 
separates market gardeners from gardeners. You know, you, you need to know how much money you need to make. Um, you can't just go out and say, okay, I'm going to plant some of this and that and, you know, see how it goes. If you're trying to make a living at it, you've got, you know, and hopefully you know how to budget and um, use a wheelbarrow, you know, to, to <laughs> cut corners. But still, you have a certain amount of money that you need and, um, you know, so you kind of work back from there. Okay, if this is how much money I need, how many heads of lettuce is that? How many CSA members do I need to, to reach that goal? How much money, how much do I need to sell at market every week? Um, know how much you need to plant. So again, this is just working it through. Okay, well, if I'm making this much at market, what's that going to come from? You know, these are the crops I want to grow, so I need to make this much per per week and grow this much. Know when it needs to be planted. That's a huge part of it. Succession planting. Have a succession of plantings to keep a continuous harvest. You know, that's, that's a trick. That doesn't um, just happen. It takes some real planning. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of tools now to help you with that. Um, you know, Johnny's uh, website, Johnny Selected Seeds, has a lot of calculating tools and stuff to kind of help you with this. But planning is, is critical. Size of garden, always tend the smallest amount of land possible, but, it, but tend it exceptionally well. I love that quote. This, by the way, is a picture of our little, or part of our market garden. Um, at least one full-time worker per half acre. That's, I feel, a minimum. If you're doing it intensively, um, I would say, you know, if you really get intensive, I would say it's more like one full-time worker per quarter acre. Um, so you got to take that into consideration. You know, you don't just go out and plow up an acre and a half and say, yeah, I'm going to do it this year. Um, because there's no way one person could handle that, especially if you're doing the marketing as well. Um, but this is the key. The income potential of $100,000 per acre. Um, you want to be growing crops that if you calculate, and obviously you're not going to grow an acre of kale, but, you know, on our farm this year, Kale was hands down the biggest money maker. It was amazing. It went all summer long. We still are harvesting from kale that I planted the seed the beginning of February. What did we do? Well, you know, it was in a hoop house. And we just stayed on top of the watering and fertility. And usually what does kale in for us is the harlequin bugs. They come around the 1st of July normally. 
And this year, for whatever reason, we had a very light infestation of harlequin bugs. So we just kind of handpicked them off. Um, I, you know, I don't know what else to say, but we tried to, we just took better care of the plants, I think was a big thing. But it was actually in a hoop house that we didn't even have shade cloth on. So it was, it was amazing. I mean, I think we, we made over $7,000 on like three rows of kale. Three beds, yeah, that's right, three beds. Um, so you want to be looking at those crops that are going to bring that kind of return. And, and this, is not, um, this is not like unattainable. There are many people that are getting this kind of income. And I'll just say this, I think this was probably the first year but we made over $100,000 an acre. And that's gross, obviously. But with COVID this year, it pushed us over that, um, that potential. And I would guess if you extrapolated your numbers out to an acre, would it be 100,000? Yeah. A lot of people may not be doing an acre. We have about an acre and a half. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not that unreachable. Um, what percentage of, of gross is profit? Um, well, I will say our expenses were very high this year because we had some natural disasters and stuff. So um, at this point, I, you know, our goal is to get up to 50% net, but I, I would say 40% is probably more realistic for most farms. I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in here. 40% of net, I, of gross is net. Jamie? It's going to depend on your crop. So like you said, if you diversify, some crops will give you a lot more than 50% for your investment and some will give less, so you can make a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true that it's all about what you're growing. Okay, we're, we're going to run out of time here. I knew I had more stuff than I could fit in. Um, location is really important. And I really encourage anyone wanting to do this for a full-time living that ideally you need to be within an hour's drive of a pretty major metropolitan area because that's your market. Your country folk, if they don't have their own garden, they're certainly not going to want to pay you the prices you need for your stuff. Um, it's, the, it's the affluent the more highly educated in general, there are always exceptions, but that's your market. And, you know, we're just upfront about it. Yeah, we charge, we charge high prices for our stuff. If you don't want to pay them, we'll teach you how to do it yourself. But if you want us to grow for you, this is what it costs. Simple. 
Good water source to me is huge, huge. Good sun exposure, good soil. To me, the good soil is probably at the bottom of the list because on a small scale, you can make any soil good. Um, and that's the, one of the beauties of market gardening. You can really invest in your soil. Um, fairly level is always helpful. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I don't know. I'm, it, we, this ends at 1030, right? Yeah, so I, I think for many of you, this is kind of basic stuff. You know, 100 foot long beds is kind of a standard 30 inch wide bed. I mean, 30 inch, yeah, 30 inch wide beds um, grow in blocks. We have eight beds per block. This is kind of cool. I Take a picture of this. Curtis Stone is a market gardener. I'm sure many of you have seen his YouTube videos. But he came up with this CVR, crop value rating. And these are the five things he looks at. Short days to maturity, high yield per linear foot, high price per pound, long harvest period, and popularity. And so he grades his crops based on these five criteria. And here's just some examples. So again, you can take a picture. Um, these are all crops with a high CVR or crop value rating. Notice, you know, tomatoes is a three over five. Most people would think tomatoes were up at the top, but there's much more profitable crops than tomatoes. Radishes, because they're so quick, wow, okay. they, they, you know, you can turn them around quickly and they're just pretty. Yeah, okay, so infrastructure needs. Now notice I have a question mark here because what are needs? You know, I know a lot of people, some of them very well, like ourselves, who started out with much less than this. But in an ideal world, these are some of your main needs. You know, a heated greenhouse for starting seeds, a washing area, ideally with a cement slab. That's not a necessity, but it's nice. A walk-in cooler if you're growing in the summer. A hoop house is really nice, or two or three or four or... We're up to nine now. Um, water for washing area and irrigation. Water, again, is key. And deer fencing. If you are anywhere with deer, you know, um, you, you need that. Specialized equipment. Well, I've got that handout that can show you some of those things. You can just take a picture if you want to here. Um, I'm not convinced you need a BCS or a tractor for a market garden. Like I said, some of the most successful farms are just using hand tools. And to me, there's a beauty in the simplicity of just using hand tools. Startup costs. This is interesting. Elliot Coleman, in his New Organic Grower book back in... in 1995 suggested that you could get going with fifteen thousand dollars 
J.M. Fortier in The Market Gardener, which came out in 2014, suggested more like $39,000 for the needed infrastructure to get going. That's uh, like yeah, the stuff I just listed, you know, your walk-in cooler, your, your starter house. Daniel Mays, have any of you seen his new book out? It's called The No-Till Organic Grower's Handbook, I think. It just came out a few months ago. I highly recommend it. Um, very good. He suggests more like 30000 the first year and then... 70,000 over the next three years. So 100,000 over the first four years to get a farm really up and going. Um, now, remember that some of this 70,000 is coming from what you're earning. So it's not like you have to come up with 100,000 to get going. You're just reinvesting heavily. Uh, but I would say this is the real key, is God calling you to it? If you feel God calling you to it, um, he's going to, God's biddings are enablings, right? So you may not have the resources to start in the ideal way, but I believe that um, if you feel a strong conviction on your heart, that he will lead you. And that's, but you, you got to know that he called you to it because that's going to pull you through the hard times. Um, so where do you go from here? I would highly recommend read, watch, listen to all the recommended resources that I have on the, well, you can't do them all. There's more than you could do, but just immerse yourself in the culture of small farms. Spend time working with people who are making a living doing this. And ideally, a few years. And you're thinking, a few years? You know, most people go to college for four years and they're going to pay 100000 dollars And they're going to come out with a degree that they may or may not be able to get a job. You know, we're talking about spending a few years and you shouldn't have any money out of pocket because you may not earn a whole lot if you're interning on a farm, but hey, it's a cheap education, right? I think you want to look at it that way, even if you're volunteering. If there's a farm that's really successful, just say, hey, could I come volunteer? You know, maybe you can't do it full time, but... The more you're exposed, you're going to be learning, I like this, I don't like that. You're going to be sifting through it. And um, yeah, it's really important. Tour farms, that's always helpful. Go to conferences, start growing. That's a key. Don't, don't wait for until you have the perfect setup. Start where you're at. Just get your feet wet, your hands dirty. And... Um, Again, make sure God is leading you, because I can promise you, times are going to be tough. And if you're not sure of God's leading, you're going you're gonna to throw in the towel, or throw in the, the hoe, throw in the shovel, something. Um, 
so yeah and that's it we made it but there's not time for questions well let's take one or two certifications good question um man we are not certified organic anymore we were at one time we do not feel the need for it with our markets and our our um customer base it's yeah for a new grower if you're trying to get into a challenging market there might be a place for organic certification to kind of build that initial trust certainly if you're going to wholesale definitely certified organic otherwise they're going to just pay you conventional pricing um, that's all i can say because of time Sean, were you um well let's see the this yes this will be somewhere um i which how far is this the one Well, that's, do I buy compost? Are we able to make enough? We used to buy compost by the tractor trailer load. Um, we don't anymore. And that's kind of, there's a complicated answer because our soil is super high in phosphorus naturally. So we only make our own. And yeah, we buy a lot of peat moss. We, we believe in peat moss. So I, I just want to, I'm happy to, well, actually, I can't stay very long because I've got another class, but. Can I ask about your tithing? Do you tithe just on profit or do you tithe on what you actually were part of? Okay, tithing. That's a good question. And honestly, my wife is the bookkeeper. So we try to be very generous with God. We do first fruits. We, um, and to be totally honest i'm not sure how we tithe because my wife she's got free reign of the finances so you could ask her but it is kind of a tricky thing to know how to tithe but all i can say is we've never regretted being generous with god um, he always gives us more than we give him this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.